So if you're at Matthew chapter 7, look toward the end. We actually, if you're participating already, should have listened to this maybe two days ago. So this will sound familiar, hopefully, to most of us. Starting at verse 24, Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain came, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, And it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. So let's do a few notes just on this passage. You'll you'll remember that Jesus says that we're not just supposed to listen to his words, we're supposed to do them. So to start with, that's a great reminder for us as we listen to the New Testament through the summer, month by month, week by week, day by day. This is not just an exercise or a discipline in hearing. We're supposed to respond, we're supposed to do, we're supposed to incorporate what Jesus says and the apostles as they pass on his teaching into our thought life, into our actions, into our relationships. Second, those last few verses of chapter 7 is a big thing that we'll see next week about Matthew, and that is the authority of Jesus. Matthew is out to show us that Jesus is the authority and really the only one that we bend the knee to. We submit to, we respect other people that he grants authority to. But ultimately, and on the deepest level, we have one authority, and that is Jesus himself. I'm going to borrow this illustration, though, of a house built on rock versus a house built on sand and apply it to this idea of listening to the New Testament or studying it. So this is what we're going to say. In terms of listening to God's word and studying it and applying it, the rock is going to be God's intentionality that God has a plan and a purpose and a design to the books of the Bible and what happens within each book. I'll unpack that a whole lot this morning. So that if you believe that, that God has a plan and purpose in how he ordered Scripture and how he ordered each book within Scripture, then when storms come in life, like doubt or depression or debate, are suffering, you're going to be okay, more than okay. But the sand, in my borrowing of this illustration, is going to be thinking that God randomly put things together. Maybe we've got everything in Scripture that we need, but it was just thrown there carelessly by God. Carelessly meaning without care, without plan, without thought, without intention. So that we could just open our Bibles up point a finger at a verse, read the verse, obey it, walk away and say, that's my word from God for today, and be fine. We don't have to look at what comes before or after it. That would be building a house on sand 
And although with some verses you could be fine doing that, with other verses, when that storm hits, you will fall, and the fall might be great. Because God didn't put things there randomly. As if it's a collection of tens of thousands of verses, and you can pick them out without looking at what comes before or after it. All right, this morning we're going to cover three questions as we visualize this idea of building a house on a rock, the words of Jesus, doing his words, reading his words as he gave them, in the order that he gave them, not picking and choosing our own verses here and there. Question number one, is the number of books important? Keyword here is number. So we're talking table of contents. If you would count up the number of books in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then both, add them all together. Is that important? Here's my answer. Yes, but. So if you're taking notes, it'd be a yes, comma, B-U-T, dot, dot, dot. So here's what I mean by this. It seems that there is significance to the actual number of books that God put in the Bible. During the time of Jesus and the century after We've got a number of Jewish authors that talk about the Hebrew Bible as consisting of 22 books. Now, by Hebrew Bible, I mean the same thing that we call the Old Testament. Remember that Jews wouldn't call it an Old Testament because they don't have a New Testament. So, Hebrew Bible, 22 books. And the Bible had been closed, the Old Testament, by the time Jesus was born. So, does anyone know the Bible's sitting on your laps? Can anyone just yell it out? How many books do we have in our Old Testament? What's the number? 39. Thank you, I was worried for a second there. No one would know. I figured somebody's got to know that. 39. Now, there's a pretty big difference between 39 and 22, isn't there? So, did they have a different Bible, Jesus and the apostles, than what we have in terms of our Old Testament? Well, the answer is no. And the key is that there's no difference in content here. There's a difference in arrangement. And it is this, specifically, that the Hebrews combined books that we see as separate books. I'm going to show you what this looks like on the screen. So we're going to look at the Old Testament here. And in a day or two, what we'll do with the audio version uh, is put a handout that you can print on the website next to the audio file. So here are the 22 books of the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible. And what we'll see is that some of these got combined. If you look at number 22, the very last one, what we know of as the 12 minor prophets, the last books of your Old Testament, to the Hebrews was one book or one scroll. And they actually gave it a name. They called it the Twelve. So think of it as maybe a book with 12 chapters. It wasn't continuous. There really was a break, some white space, some carried returns, so to speak, um, between one prophet and the next. But to them, it was one book, not 12. So you've got a difference of 11 right there, right? Let me give you one more example. Number nine has Samuel-Kings. We know that as 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings, four different books. This is, if you've read through these books, one continuous narrative. It's one story. 2 Samuel chapter 1 picks up exactly where 1 Samuel, the last chapter, ended. 1 Kings chapter 1 picks up exactly where 2 Samuel, the last chapter, ended. Chronicles is different. That's completely different. 
But 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, one long story. So what happened? The early church split this up because it was so long. And actually, Hebrew or Jewish Bibles today follow that and divide it up into four books. But in the days of Jesus, this was one book. So let me stop there with examples. But the point is, you've got 22 books in the Hebrew Bible. Now, let's turn to the New Testament. When we look at the New Testament, we start with what is really five Gospels. Let me show you what this looks like. And yes, you heard me correct. You might have thought, oh, Ron, you made a little mistake there. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you said five. No, I really mean to say five. When you think about the book of Acts, this is a telling of the story of Jesus in many ways the same as Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and in some ways different. It still tells the story of Jesus, but it tells the story after his death and resurrection, and it's the story as told through the apostles, mostly Paul and Peter. But uh, the book of Acts is about a thousand verses, and 365 of those verses are speeches. Speeches given by people like Paul and Peter. And most of those speeches consist of them telling the story of Jesus. So Acts really goes with the four Gospels. It's history. It tells the story of Jesus. Yes, there are a few differences between that and the first four books. It does not go with the letters. So if we've got five Gospels, and then take my word for this, there are 22 letters that follow these five Gospels. Pretty much the rest of the New Testament is letters. Even the book of Revelation starts with seven letters to seven churches. So, let's see who's quick with adding here. You've got 22 Old Testament. We want a total of the whole Bible now. Five Gospels. 22 letters that follow. What's my total number here? 49. 49 is significant because, let you think about it for a second, it is actually seven times seven. And to the Hebrews, seven is a holy number that stands for, symbolizes, completeness. It goes all the way back to Genesis 1, where God created the world in seven days. And you can see that number used a number of times, no pun intended, symbolically in the Bible. Psalm 119, verse 164, the psalmist says, seven times a day I praise you. Does that mean he had to be legalistic and count? Got to make sure that by the time I drift off into sleep, I've hit the number seven. No, it means throughout the day, the whole day, a day purely spent of prayer and praise, no matter what he was doing, whether in the temple, near the temple, in the workplace. Now, here's the key point. We don't base our confidence in the authority of God's word on numbers like this. We're not even sure that the Hebrews had 22 books. We just have people quoting that number. We put our confidence in the authority of God's word in what the Bible says about itself in Psalm 119, for example, or 2 Timothy 3.16, or a number of passages where Jesus talks about the scriptures. Again, not in some kind of numbers game or trivia. So that's why I say it's important, but it's not critically important. We don't, 
live our lives different tomorrow because of the number 49, which is seven times seven. We should live them differently because Jesus calls attention to God's word in his own words. We listen, and like Matthew 7 says, we do what we hear. That will make a key difference. So let's move on to question number two. Number two is the order of books, we're moving away from the number now, is the order of books important? My answer here is yes with the period after it. So if you're taking notes, maybe put yes, put a big fat period. So that reminds you, this is a more for sure yes. More important for study than that first question about numbers and books and totals. In fact, we can say that God put order into the Bible in two different senses. The first one is the ordering of books. And by that I mean the table of contents. So let's look at, again at that list of books in the New Testament. But this time we're going to look at the whole New Testament, not just the five Gospels. So we said already there are five Gospels to start out things. You might have seen on the other slide that some scholars look at these five and call them a new Torah. T-O-R-A-H. Torah is a Hebrew word. It means law or instruction. And it refers to the first five books of the Old Testament, also known as the books of Moses. So just like we've got five books of history where God speaks directly in the Old Testament, we've got this New Testament counterpart in the five Gospels. God speaks a lot, again, directly in the Torah. For instance, we use red letters often in Bible translations for the words of Jesus. If you have a Bible with you that you brought from home, probably over half of them have red lettering for the words of Jesus. What if we were to use that technique in the books of Moses and maybe use the color blue so that every time God spoke directly to Adam or Abraham or Moses, or the people of Israel, we had blue. We'd have blue all over the place, especially in Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy. So, Old Testament Torah, God speaks directly. New Testament Gospels, the new Torah, red letters all over the place. God speaks directly in God the second person, Jesus. So, we can say this about both beginnings to the Testaments. Number one, it's foundational. Are the books of Moses foundational for the rest of the Old Testament? Oh, yes. Think of how many things happen there that the prophets look back on. Are the first five books of the New Testament foundational for the rest of the New Testament? Of course. Paul looks back on the teachings of Jesus and applies them. So these five books are foundational. Second, God speaks directly in each. So, here's one more thought. Uh, You'll remember I said there were 22 books in the New Testament after the five Gospels. We're going to further divide that up as we look at those 22, and you'll see this on the, the chart that, again, you could print if you want to later this week. We'll take that 22 and divide that up into 21 letters and one book of symbolism, the last book of our Bible, the New Testament, which we call the book of Revelation. We've already talked about the parallel between the Gospels and the Torah or the books of Moses. In these 21 letters, we're going to call those books of instruction. In fact, we could further divide those, I didn't put this on the slide, into the letters of Paul, 
and then what are called the general letters or the general epistles. In fact, I picked this up from Ryan. Um, the letters of Paul start from the longest and end with the shortest. So there's some kind of organization there. Think of the book of Romans. That's the first one. That's pretty long. Last one is Philemon. That's pretty short. And the general letters, same thing. Start with Hebrews. Wow, that's pretty long. End with Second, Third John and Jude. Well, those are pretty short. One chapter each. The Old Testament, according to Judaism, and we actually see verses where Jesus follows this pattern as well, was divided up into three parts. We, we've hit part one already, the Torah. Second part was the prophets. Here's what the prophets did in the Old Testament. The prophets called the people to repentance and called upon the people and the kings to turn away from idolatry and to turn to Yahweh as their true king and God. The prophets gave instruction, and that instruction was based on the books of Moses. So there's a sense in which they're applying the books of Moses, especially God's speeches in the book of Deuteronomy. Think of what these letters do. They do the same thing. They call upon the people of God, the church, and its leaders to turn away from idolatry, to turn away from sinful pride, to turn away from selfishness, and to turn to Christ, to live in Christ. And these letters apply what Jesus taught in the Gospels, the New Torah. There's a third and final section to the Old Testament, and that is called the writings. Torah, or the books of Moses, prophets, writings. And what was the third part of our New Testament, the book of symbolism, Revelation? Well, in these writings, there are several key books. I'll give you the three main ones that are highly symbolic. One of those is the book of Daniel. In the Hebrew arrangement of their Bible, Daniel is not considered with the prophets. It's part of the writings. And Daniel, if you've read through it, is highly symbolic. Symbolism all over the place. And if you've read through Revelation, same thing there, right? Symbolism, every chapter, every verse, almost, symbolic. In fact, in a number of places, Revelation looks back on and cites specifically verses or thoughts from the book of Daniel. Here's a second book in the Old Testament writings section that is symbolic. Book of Psalms. You might not think of Psalms as being that symbolic. The view of the Psalms that I like the best says that the Psalms is a book about kingship. It starts with David as king. He's not king yet. His kingship is threatened. Then he becomes king. There's a key psalm there in Psalm 45 where he's uh, inaugurated as king. Then his descendants, Davidic kings, encounter trouble again from Assyria and Babylon. That's the middle of the book of Psalms. Jerusalem is laid waste. There are psalms about that. And the last third of the book of Psalms is all about God himself as king. This is where our true hope is. And God will literally reign in bodily form on earth. And there's an intersection in the book of Psalms between Davidic kings, human beings, and God himself. So you finish the book saying, how in the world is this thing going to work? that a descendant of David will be king, but God himself will be king 
and have a body and, and we'll be able to see him? We know the answer to that. In fact, Matthew tells us the answer to that. In the very first verse of the book, the answer is Jesus. The book of Revelation is filled with battles and a king who is God himself. So Revelation has all of these great symbols. We've got uh, beasts, and we've got a lamb, and we've got a dragon, and we've got battles all over the place. We've got a new Jerusalem. We've got a new temple, which actually doesn't have a floor, walls, and a ceiling. It's a different kind of temple. We've got a wedding feast that we as believers of God, followers of Christ, are invited to and participate in as more than guests. All of that is in the book of Revelation. There's a third book of the Old Testament in the writings section that is very symbolic. And you might not think of this book as you might not think of the book of Psalms. It's the book of Chronicles. Chronicles covers the same, or most of the same history as Samuel Kings does. Remember, that was one book, one scroll. Samuel Kings covers the history of Israel from a prophetic viewpoint. Chronicles does it from a priestly viewpoint. So Chronicles is all about the priesthood and the temple. Someday here at DSC, I'd love to teach just on Chronicles uh, to show you this emphasis on temple and a, a place where God can live and abide and dwell and be worshipped. Well, Revelation ends with a new temple. But again, not one built with walls, even walls of gold. In fact, Jesus referred to this temple in the Gospels when he said, destroy this temple, the temple in Jerusalem, and I'll rebuild it in three days. The temple was his own body. So Chronicles and the books that follow, Ezra and Nehemiah, long for a day when there will be a God-created temple. In Ezra and Nehemiah, if you remember, the people try to go back to Israel and rebuild the temple, but it's pretty shoddy looking. It's very incomplete. And again, it creates this longing for a true temple where God can be worshipped. So, here's a little memory aid for this threefold division. Think of history as his story. Capital H, capital I, capital S. H stands for the books of history, the five gospels. I for instruction, what follows the five gospels. S, symbolism, that last book. All right, let's go back to question number two. Is the order of books important? We said yes, period. Yes, for sure. It's not just the order of books, though, as in the table of contents. God has put order within each book. So take any book out of that table of contents. And within that book, as you read through it, or this summer, listen to it, God has put order into that book. So one thing you can listen for or look for, whether you listen or read the New Testament this summer, is even the first verse of the first chapter, or those first few verses. Often an author will put some key topics or themes into that very first verse. Matthew, for instance, does this. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Here's how Matthew opens. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
So look at that for a minute. We don't just have Jesus, his proper name. We have Christ or Messiah. That looks right back to the Old Testament saying, this is your Messiah. This is the authority. And then you've got son of David, son of Abraham. Part of what Matthew is out to answer is the question, who is this Jesus and where did he come from? And Matthew, of course, is going to point us right back to the Old Testament. As we're going to see next week, when we get past the beginning of Matthew, there is order in the main body of Matthew. One piece that we'll talk more about next week is a backbone of three speeches or three sermons. The first of which you've probably heard it before. In fact, we listened to it uh, a day or two ago. And that is called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, 7. Well, there are two other key sermons in the book of Matthew. And there's a reason why the Sermon on the Mount came first, and then Matthew 18 comes second, and Matthew 25, 26, that comes third. We'll look at all of that next week. And does Matthew have an ending in which we can see pattern, design, and order? Yeah, he sure does. In Matthew chapter 28, we have the last words of Jesus before he ascends to be with God the Father which we call the mission of the church or sometimes called the Great Commission. A highly significant, power-packed three or four verses that is intentionally at the end of the book of Matthew. So, question number two, is order important? Yes, period. Yes, for sure. Final question, number three. Is expository preaching important? This sounds like a huge break from what we've been talking about so far. The order and arrangement of God's Bible, his holy words, the scriptures. But I think there's a high overlap between the two. We're talking about listening through the New Testament and seeing, hearing the order that God has there. So this is the perfect time to ask the question, how do we preach God's word? By expository, we mean preaching through a book or a passage, and letting the book or the passage direct our teaching or our preaching. So God's point in the book or the passage is our point in the sermon. Uh, What would be something that would not be expository preaching? Well, topical preaching would be not expository. So let's say I got up and said, I want to give you 10 keys for following Christ. Now, in my 10 keys, I'm going to have a lot of biblical terminology. However, they're still my 10 keys. Am I really sure that if God were to write 10 keys, he'd pick the same 10 that I would pick? I don't know if I can answer a for sure yes to that. Would God put his number one key to following Christ the same as the number one I put? I don't know. Would God use the same language that I use as I construct my teaching on 10 keys for following Christ? Maybe not. That's a lot of doubt in there. So think about it for a minute. If Jesus wanted to give us 10 keys for following him, he could have done that, right? We could have had a sermon in Matthew where he even enumerates them, where Jesus even says, here are 10 keys keys for following me. And then he could say in Greek, number one, and we'd see it in English, number one. But God didn't do that. 
So why do we preach in an expositional or expository manner here at Desert Springs? Why do we go through, thinking of the last four or five years, the book of Philippians, pretty much verse by verse, or the beginning section of Daniel, or the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, or Luke. We can't do Luke really verse by verse, or Ryan would have been at that for seven, eight years, right? But he did selected stories in Luke, but started at the beginning, went toward the end, and each one is a passage. The point of the passage is the point of the sermon. Or, as we just finished up, the book of Colossians. Why do we do that? There are five, six, seven good answers to that. Let me give you just one, which I think is the best answer. We preach in an expository manner because that is the way God presents truth. Why would I make up ten keys when I can go through a sermon of Jesus and let you have things the way he wants them presented? There's no good reason for doing that. Now, occasionally we have topical sermons here, and that makes sense. There are events on the church calendar, like Christmas or Easter, where a topical sermon makes sense. But even then, we'll usually go through a passage of Scripture. Or sometimes the elders might get together and say, we th- Ryan, we think the church could really use a three or four week series on this topic. There's a huge interest in this area. There's a need. Um, so could we break from the book series and talk about this topic? The church, the Holy Spirit, who knows what the topic might be. And we would look at scriptures with that topic. But for the most part, we go through the Bible as God has laid it out. So the way we preach has a huge amount of overlap with what we're doing as a church this summer. So our answer to that question, is expository preaching important? I'm going to say is yes, exclamation point. So if you're right, put a big fat exclamation point after that. So we've gone through three questions right now. What I'd like to do is give you a brief preview to Matthew. So a little bit of a brief look ahead toward next week. Matthew is the bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So think about what a bridge does for a minute. A bridge gets you from one place to another. Those two places are usually pretty close together. One bank of a river to the other bank. You see the other bank. So they're pretty close together. But there's some seemingly insurmountable obstacle like a river or a deep gorge in between these two land areas. And the bridge gets you across that. So think of Old and New Testaments. Uh, The Old Testament's really close to the New. Unless you've got a study Bible with a, a section on an introduction to the New Testament... You finished up Malachi, you flip the page, Matthew. But it seems like, and I think especially from the Israelites' point of view, an insurpassable gorge between those two testaments. Think of how the Old Testament ends. We've got a priesthood that is corrupt. You can read about that in the book of Malachi. But really wasn't new with Malachi. If you ever read the end of the book of Judges, chapters 17 through 21... There are two horrific stories about two Levites. Levites are priests, by the way, who were very greedy, selfish, and immoral. But Book of Malachi reaffirms that the priesthood is not making it. 
book of Malachi, the whole Old Testament, ends with a people of God who have no king that they can joyfully and willfully follow. Wow, where are they going to get a king from? Davidic kings have failed them. And the Old Testament ends, the book of Malachi ends, with God himself having no temple where he can joyfully be worshipped in. So a corrupt priesthood, a king-less people, and a temple-less God who deserves a temple. From an Israelite point of view, where's the bridge that gets us across to that? Matthew comes along. Chapter 1, verse 1, says, here's the bridge, the book of Matthew, here's the answer, and it's even in the first verse, it is in that one word, Jesus. Our Lord, our Savior, our King, our Shepherd, our Redeemer. There's also a bridge book in the Old Testament. If you were here at the end of February, I think the very last Sunday of February, I preached a sermon, which was really an overview of Malachi. Let me give you the short end of that sermon because Malachi is the bridge in the Old Testament that thrusts people forward to the New. So just like Matthew, first book of New Testament is the bridge book that gets you from Old to New. The Old Testament is the last book that gets you started on that bridge across this gorge. Here's the short version of Malachi. Malachi gets a lot of press for two things tithing and divorce. So often preachers focus on those two things. I think they're superficial to Malachi. There are deeper issues in Malachi, and Malachi is really about three pictures. Malachi talks about a messenger, a messenger for God. In fact, the name Malachi means my messenger, God being the one who's speaking. So we've got a picture of a messenger. We can picture that, a messenger or an ambassador. Uh, Second, Malachi talks about the priesthood. Again, it's corrupt. But it shouldn't be. These are the people that worship God and help others to worship him. And third, Malachi talks about God's name being great or high or lifted up among the nations. And we can picture height. We can picture a name being up. And then we can picture all the people groups, all of the nations of the earth. That's what should happen. Well, what do we have in the New Testament, even in the book of Matthew? Well, do we have a messenger that comes and speaks for God before Messiah comes? Yes, the messenger of the book of Malachi, according to the Gospels and Matthew, is John the Baptist. Someone who comes and speaks before Christ comes to announce his coming. Does the New Testament solve the problem of a corrupt priesthood? It does because Christ has a body, you and I, believers and followers, that is the new priesthood. Now, are we perfect? By all means, no, we're not perfect. But God is redeeming us, sanctifying us in a way he could not do to the Old Testament Levites or priests. He's doing that by his spirit, resident within us, creating a pure, white, spotless bride that we read about in the book of Revelation. So God has a new priesthood. It is the church, and it is in Matthew that we read first about the church. As much as Matthew looks back on the Old Testament and is Jewish, we'll see next week that Matthew also introduces new things, or better worded, Jesus himself introduces new things. And one of those in Matthew chapter 16 is the church. 
the new priesthood. Finally, Malachi several times talks about longing for God's name to be lifted up, to be great among the nations. His name, great among the nations. What does that remind you of in Matthew? Chapter 28, has God's name, the three-in-one name, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And where does that name go? It is to go to all people groups, to all the nations. Not a citation of Malachi, but certainly looking back on that other bridge book between the two Testaments. So, last thing for us today. Let me give you some second mile extra work if you'd like it for the summer. I used to be a professor. I think I still kind of am a bit of a professor. So I'm going to give you a little bit if you want to do something besides listening through the New Testament. Now, if you recoil against this, you say, Ron, man, that that 12 minutes Ryan was talking about, that's enough for me to do. Please don't give me homework. Then walk away and forget what I'm going to say in the next three, four minutes. But if you've got time, there are a few things you could do as you listen to the New Testament books. Take a pen in hand, get a pad of paper or a keyboard and a screen. And here are some ideas on some notes you could take. First thing you could do, or one of the things you could do, is to formulate a question that you think the author of that biblical book is trying to answer. Every book of the Bible answers at least one key question. Many of them answer two or three or four questions. A couple quick examples. When I think of Romans, I think of Paul answering the question, what is the gospel? He answers it in detail. So if someone were to say to me, Ron, what is the gospel? And I want a long answer. I would say, read the book of Romans. There's your answer. That's what the gospel is. And then the last four chapters, the ramifications or the, the fruit, the results of the gospel as we interact with each other in the church and outside of the church. Uh, book of Galatians. One of two or three questions the book of Galatians answers is, now that we've um, come to be saved, now that we're in Christ, what does that freedom mean? We know we don't have to obey laws to please God, but what does that kind of freedom mean? Paul answers that in Galatians. Uh, how about First John? A key question First John answers is, what if I'm not sure I'm a Christian? What if I have doubts? First John is the book to go to. That's your answer right there. Book of Job, I think you know that question here. What do I do when I'm going through intense suffering? Well, read God's speeches at the end of the book and Job's response to what God says. So as you listen to Matthew or Acts or 2 Timothy or 2 John, one idea would be see if you can figure out what question that author is trying to address or answer. So here's a second idea if you don't like that first one. As you listen, listen for key verses. So maybe even today as you listen to what, I think it's going to be Matthew 12 and 13. Uh, You may not have any. I mean, you shouldn't have 30 or 40 by the end of the book of Matthew, but if you came up with three or five or eight, that'd be really great. Maybe today you'll hear Jesus saying, I came to do this. Well, that might be a key verse. Jesus declaring why he came. And you could write that down as you listen. And look up, see what verse reference it goes with. 
Or a third and final idea, as you listen through the New Testament, what does each book teach about Christ? When you finish up 2 Timothy or Hebrews or James and you think back to what you've heard or read if you're reading, then write down, what do I think was taught about Christ in this particular book? So three ideas, but again, it's all optional. The key thing is, listening or reading to God's word on a daily basis. And remembering what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, which was this. If you listen, and you could listen, my paraphrase here, you could listen for hours every day. You could listen to the whole New Testament every day this whole summer. That doesn't do anything if it's simply listening. So Jesus says that would be only listening like building a house on sand. We actually had neighbors. They moved away a year ago, uh, but uh, five houses down from us here in Albuquerque. And they thought their house was built on rock or maybe better worded, uh, properly compacted earth that sits over rock. Well, after a few years of living in the house, stuff started sinking. Cracks started appearing in the wall that you could literally put your finger in. And they discovered it was really built more on what's, what's basically sand. And when the water came in underneath, it washed away that sand. That's the picture of reading or listening or reading, rushing through it and saying, I can check my box in my little chart here at DSC, and God must be pleased with what I've done because I've listened to those two chapters. Jesus says, Listen, and then do what you hear Jesus talk about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, I thank you, and I trust that I speak for all of us, the order and design that you, as the master architect, put into this thing we call the Bible. Father, I pray again you'll help all of us, and I speak especially for myself here, not to worship a book or words, but to use this to worship Jesus and to focus our thoughts and energies and worship on him. May we do that this day, and may we do that this week. I pray that you'll help us by your spirit as we listen to your words, and that you'll help us to respond and act and think and meditate on what we listen to and to let that flow out into actions, responses to others, responses to circumstances and our life of worship. May you bless what we do as a church this summer so that we can glorify the name of Jesus in his good and great name, amen.